African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Thank you for joining us once again right here on African Dialogue. You're listening to Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa, and the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Mushatama. You're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa, and on DSTV on Channel 902. Well, today on our program, we'll be looking at the Water Institute of Southern Africa a conference, and that is one that is basically looking at the very tiring times and trying times, rather, on the continent, especially in Southern Africa, looking at this drought and how we're coping with it. But before we get into that topic, let's get our news update from Anne Musa. In the headlines, Kenyan protesters shot and killed in overnight protests by police. The South African Navy calls off search for eight vessels suspected of illegal fishing off the country's coastline. And the Afghan government announced a national campaign to vaccinate against polio. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. Kenyan police have shot and killed one person in overnight protests following the violent breakup of earlier protests by police. Opposition leader Raila Odinga has meanwhile said protests to demand the overhaul of the country's electoral commission will continue every Monday. Odinga, whose vehicle was hit by a bullet during the protests, has condemned the police for allegedly using excessive force. Kenya goes to the polls in August next year. Serakimani reports. Images of police using buttons and tear gas to disperse rioting protesters circulated on social media for the better part of Monday, drawing mixed reactions from Kenyans. While majority of them felt that police used excessive force, others argued that the war justified in dispersing the protesters calling for electoral reforms. Police say they were forced to use force because some of the protesters were looting from shops near the electoral commission offices. Restoring security in the face of critical challenges is key for the future of Libya. That's one of the key points to emerge from a joint communique issued on behalf of dozens of countries following a high-level ministerial meeting in Vienna, Austria. The ministers reiterated their full political backing for the efforts of the UN Special Representative in Libya to try and broker a lasting peace in the North African country. The United States and other world powers also voiced readiness to supply weapons to Libya's internationally recognized government to counter militants and rivals. Matthew Wells reports. A government of national accord, or GNA, has been trying to unify the warring parties across Libya since late last year, but instability and fighting is still rife. 
Rival factions have not come together under the terms of the internationally recognised Libyan political agreement and the ministers meeting in Vienna assured GNA representatives that they would not have to face their grave security challenges alone. They welcomed Prime Minister Fayez al-Sarraj to the meeting, hailing his recent commitment to establish the GNA in the capital Tripoli as a turning point. The South African Navy's search for eight vessels suspected of illegal fishing off the country's coastline has been called off. Nine vessels were spotted between KwaZulu-Natal and the Eastern Cape last week. One of them was confiscated and taken to Cape Town, and the others managed to escape. Fisheries Department Director General Sipokazi Ndudane says their radar shows that the vessels have left South African waters, and tracking them down any further would be a waste of money. When they are gone, there is no reason why we should deploy vessels to roam around aimlessly along that area. Otherwise, we will be wasting taxpayers' money as it takes approximately 6.5 million rands to fill up a tank of these vessels. So there is no reason why the Navy should continue to be in the water searching for these things. Meanwhile, the world's first binding accord on illegal fishing is due to enter into force next month after reaching the required threshold of countries who have agreed to sign up. The so-called Port State Measures Agreement was drawn up by the Food and Agriculture Organization in 2009. 30 members have now formally agreed to its terms, meaning it will become international law on the 5th of June. And finally, the Afghan government has announced a national campaign to vaccinate every child under the age of five against polio. The four-day campaign will be carried out with the support of the World Health Organization and the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF. Around 65,000 trained health workers are due to vaccinate more than 9 million children and also distribute deworming tablets. Recapping the top stories, Kenyan protesters shot and killed in overnight protests by police. The South African Navy calls off the search for eight vessels suspected of illegal fishing off the country's coastline. And the Afghan government announced a national campaign to vaccinate against polio. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Remember, you are listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. That's our shortwave service. And if you're listening to us on DSTV, uh, thank you for being part of that family there on Channel 902. And online, you can listen to us on www.channelafrica.co.za.
Well, let's come to today's uh, topic. The Water Institute of Southern Africa, also known as WISA, is hosting an international conference under its own name and also an exhibition on the issue of uh, water. Now, established in the 1950s, the WISA conference has grown to become the largest of its kind in Southern Africa, detailing issues inherently faced by the area's population. The event attracts around 2,000 delegates from the water sector of Southern Africa, as well as international delegates from countries such as the Netherlands, uh, Germany, China and Australia and it also includes engineers, municipalities, water industry stakeholders and the like. This year organizers expect this number to grow to grow exponentially as the need for water solutions in the region grows. To help us unpack this conference with the theme The Ultimate Constraints, we joined on the line by Dr. Valerie Naidu who is from the Water Institute of Southern Africa, who's the board chair there and also we have uh, Dr. Mark O'Donoghue who's the CEO of the Australian Water Recycling Centre of Excellence. Thank you both for giving us your time. Let's start the uh, conversation with you Dr. Valerie Naidu. Thank you for giving us your time. Let's come back to this theme this year. Uh, It's a very interesting one and I think it's very much relevant especially at this time in Southern Africa. The ultimate constraints. Can you elaborate on that theme and why the conference chose that specific theme. Okay, I think uh, if you look at uh, South Africa, South Africa is a water-scarce country, uh, and water globally has is, is, is also uh, been at the forefront in, in recent, recent years. It's a finite resource. But I think uh, if you look at where the conference, in, uh, conference is being held, which is in Durban, uh, they're currently facing a drought in the KwaZulu-Natal province, and this has been compounded by the climate change effect of El Nino. So for them, it is the correct sort of theme to have for this because they, water has been brought, brought to the forefront and it's uh, and, and basically both governments, uh, NGOs, communities are all looking for solutions as to how to make sure that we, we manage our water supply effectively. Hmm. And in terms of looking some of the themes that are going to be coming out from this conference, can you just give us some of the interesting discussions that stick out for you, Dr. Naidu? So I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, discussions around how to manage uh, water systems. So there's uh, quite a few workshops around uh, operations and maintenance. There's also uh, a fair amount of workshops around uh, sort of uh, industry-type uh, wastewater and how to handle those, uh, including uh, workshops around governance as well, which is critical around how we manage the water resources. Uh, hmm. In terms of the general sessions, there's, there's a lot of uh, themes around, uh, you know, uh, catchment management agencies and regulations and technology, uh, community water uh, supply and sanitation systems. So there's a range of uh, themes around what we call the entire water cycle. Now, let me bring in Dr. Mark O'Donoghue, who's the CEO of the Australian Waters Recycling Centre of Excellence. Uh, Doctor, thank you for also giving us your time. Pleasure. Now, tell us, someone would ask, why would uh, an Australian organisation be involved in uh, an organisation in Africa, Southern Africa? Tell us, why was it important for you to be part of this conference? One of the biggest things that um, I'm going to learn when I come to this conference is how uh, Southern Africa are trying to address their drought. 
Australia in 2002 to 2010 had one of our worst droughts on record. Uh, we faced uh, severe water shortages for agriculture and for our urban environments. And uh, this is a, a phenomenon or an occurrence that is likely to occur quite regularly in Australia, and it's likely to occur quite regularly in southern Africa. And by better understanding the research and innovation and solutions that Southern Africa are implementing to address their drought, and by sharing some of the lessons that Australia learnt in our drought, I'm hoping that we can build a more resilient response to the next drought that both Southern Africa and Australia will face. Because um, one thing is sure is that we're both very dry continents. Uh, we face drying futures and increasing populations and water will continue to be a challenge, meeting our water needs into the future. Mm. So being here, listening and learning, I think, provides a mechanism to share some of the success stories that we in Australia have had and to learn from some of the successes occurring in Southern Africa. Mm. Well, we'll come back to some of uh, the projects maybe that you up to, Dr. Donohue, in terms of what you do at the Australian Water Recycling Centre of Excellence. Maybe you can also give us a little bit of some of your experiences in, in your country. But let me come back to you, Dr. Villarinaidu, looking at uh, the issue that you highlighted earlier is that uh, considering this ongoing drought in Southern Africa due to the El Nino effect, climate change has become a pertinent issue, one that's actually becoming also central in and also the political space and uh, the debate around the world. Seems like global environmental threats are becoming a serious issue right now, and it's becoming a big issue when it comes to how we develop as a, in terms of our different countries and part of human development. Looking at this issue, what are the challenges that we're grappling with here in Southern Africa, especially when it comes to the issue of water management, because you did highlight that would be a big theme at this conference. Okay, so I think if you look at uh, sort of Southern Africa and South Africa, so it's really about having the appropriate infrastructure to supply water but also to treat water. Uh, so in South Africa, one of the big issues at the moment is how do we deal with non-revenue water, which not only deals with the cost of water and the billing of water, but water loss through our pipes. So how do we use water conservation demand management methods to, to make sure that we move towards best practice because water being such a finite resource and valuable, you know, we shouldn't be wasting any of it. But if you look at uh, aspects like um, sort of climate change uh, on top of this, mm. we know, for example, from a, from a research background, that it, it will compound things like uh, evaporation of um, water of our open bodies, you know, what is going to be the impact in future? Can our communities deal with it? Can our infrastructure do, deal with it? What would be the economic effect of, uh, you know, increased floods or more intense floods in certain areas and then more drier and longer spells uh, in other areas? And I think uh, as, as water professionals, we need to understand, you know, how, what are the kind of mechanisms we're going to use to deal with it to become more resilient, not only as institutions, but as communities, as industry, because the impact uh, is quite uh, significant if one starts to then look at the impact that can occur around uh, your GDP growth. I think there was a report that came out recently which said that 
the impact can almost be a negative 6% uh, GDP uh, effect if we don't deal and manage the water effectively. Hmm. Well, I'm going to come back to you, uh, Dr. Marco Donahue. I need to go to a break uh, right now, but I'll come back to that same question that I asked Dr. Naidu, looking at uh, global um, change or climate change becoming this huge central uh, priority, especially also for international governments. Maybe you can also give us your thoughts about what you're seeing around the trends and how the government's starting to centralize issues of water management and governance. Maybe we'd like to hear some of your thoughts of what's happening there in Australia maybe from an international perspective what are your thoughts do you think that African governments are doing enough also to deal with the current drought especially in southern Africa give us your thoughts remember you can sms us your thoughts on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero that's plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero or you can email us at info at channelafrica.org remember you can also tweet us at African Dialogue that's our Twitter handle at African Dialogue. Don't forget to be part of that online community on our Twitter handle. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And remember, you're listening to us on Channel 902 if you're listening to us on DSTV. Those who are listening to us on USA, from the USA, uh, remember, you can call us in on 605-475-1711, 605-475-1711. And you can call us there and listen to us uh, via your telephone and uh, at no extra cost indeed. So tele- uh, it's very interesting when I heard about the technological uh, kind of uh, uh, mechanism to listen to radio, I thought it was very interesting indeed. So, hey, that's another way that you can listen to us. And thank you to those who are listening to us on our website on www.channelafrica.co.za. Well, today we're looking at the Water Institute of Southern Africa Conference, which is currently underway. Really, the topic this year is the ultimate constraints and very much a, a relevant one looking at the El Nino effects and how also Southern Africa is struggling with droughts in the region. Coming to you, Dr. Marco Donahue. Uh, he is the CEO of the Australian Water Recycling Center, if you've just joined us. Dr. Marco Donahue, um, just looking at that issue of how uh, climate change has become a political and also a prioritized issue in terms of governance. It's become a central topic indeed. How do you think that things have changed when we've actually made climate change an agenda? Have things changed in a country such as Australia? And what are your trends that you're seeing internationally? With respect to Australia, I think we're starting to appreciate the severity of a drying climate and the effect that climate change will have on our future water supply. I don't think we completely understand what the impact will be at this stage, but I think we're generating a better understanding. The Australia's had about uh, a severe El Nino about one 
every 10 years over the last 100 years. Um, they happen on about a 7 to 10 year frequency. Um, that's uh, an issue that we're starting to understand and we're starting to invest in policy and planning and practice to try and meet those, those climate change needs. On the western side of Australia, um, where Perth is located, uh, they are in a position where they're getting 25% of the rainfall that they previously received about 50 or 60 years ago. Mm. So this is a large urban population mm. that has significant challenges in meeting its future water supply. One of the things that that, uh, that Perth is doing is it implemented a very innovative agenda of water recycling for drinking and desalination to meet its future water supply needs. So they're effectively moving towards an independent, climate-independent water supply agenda. And I think that this is something that many governments are going to need to look at in the future. Our traditional water supplies of dams or groundwater, whether it's in Australia or Southern Africa or even in um, the United States, they're not going to be sufficient to meet our future needs. So new water sources are going to have to be found and those new water sources are going to have to be produced economically and safely for the future populations. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting examples and that you're making there, uh, Dr. Marco Donahue. Let me move to you, Dr. Valeri Naidu. Uh, looking at what's happening right now in uh, uh, really southern Africa, it's really concerning because uh, it has been said that the El Nino drought has left 28 million southern Africans hungry. And one of the main concerns around water issues is that water issues are only discussed when problems arise. Is this something that is continually being worked on behind the scenes? Uh, is there more that we should be seeing on the ground in terms of uh, water management systems and also uh, information that's being disseminated to ordinary citizens about the situation that we find ourselves in Southern Africa? I think one of the crux uh, matters that needs to be pulled in a little bit more rigorously around this whole issue is how to use uh, research and development uh, modeling scenarios and, and start to make better decisions around planning uh, and understand that, uh, you know, as, as Mark spoke about climate dependent, uh, I mean, climate independent type uh, approaches to the way we manage water and systems. And uh, I actually, uh, when I look at it, uh, we need to get much better at looking at how to manage a mix of water. If you look at South Africa, we, we deal a lot with uh, surface water. Uh, we've had interbasin transfers to to manage uh, assurance of supply, uh, but I think that that time is coming close to an end, and we're moving more towards a mix. We're moving more towards recycling, reclamation, uh, desalination. So you've got a, a mix of technologies, which are with a mix of sources, which will all then lead to better maybe assurance in the future around how we manage uh, water supply, and and that means that. Uh, professionals have to get better at uh, managing maybe different sources, different technologies, different operation and maintenance needs. So as a, as a sector, I mean, this is why a platform like Lisa is really important because you are starting to get your technical specialists to look at different scenarios, but also to share and to learn faster. And hopefully we get better at 
uh, dealing with these situations uh, that don't lead to disastrous consequences, as you said. In mm. terms of food security, I think that what's really important is that we we start to look at different ways of doing agriculture. I think that is a key thing. If I look at, uh, you know, a country like Netherlands has these massive hectares of greenhouses and they use a closed-loop system of uh, growing food, uh, using water, uh, collecting the water, treating the water and reusing the water. And yet we are feeding uh, irrigation-fed agriculture uh, and we're letting the water evaporate to a large extent. So I think we need to also take lessons and learn really quickly and maybe adopt and, and test new uh, approaches to, to how we generate food. Mm-hmm. Dr. Donahue, uh Dr. Valerie brings out uh, very interesting points here, especially the idea of managing a mix of water resources. Your thoughts on some of the points there? Yeah, look, I think um, everybody in Australia is moving towards what we call a, a portfolio of water supplies. Like uh, a portfolio of investments where you, if you have money to invest, you might invest in a range of different initiatives to manage risk. Um, the water industry in Australia is moving towards a, a diversified water portfolio. So that means they're looking at desalination, water recycling, groundwater, surface water, trying to capture storm water, uh, efficiency in the use, reducing people's use. Um, previously, I think one of the big changes we'll be seeing and have seen in the last 10 or 15 years in, in Australia and other countries is that relying on a single source of water will not be part of the future. You, you can't rely on having a single source of water and be able to manage the risks of, of climate change, drying climate and population growth. Um, And while we can do that and we can do it effectively in big cities, um, I I can actually see the future where big cities will be able to do this in southern Africa, Australia and elsewhere. One of the big challenges we face in Australia is is the smaller, regional, uh, rural, remote communities. They're often poorly serviced. They don't actually have the infrastructure. They don't have the opportunities to develop uh, a number of supply sources. And so in Australia, your question before about where can government do more, one of the biggest challenges we have is how do we help those regional communities? And Australia is is a very large country. It has very diverse regional communities that are often poorer than the, than the metropolitan centres. So I still think we will face some significant uh, challenges in, in making sure that we can provide uh, secure water supplies and safe water supplies for, for many of those communities in the future. Mm. And I know that uh, when we look at where we're looking at these uh, sustainable development goals, they become also uh, very much uh, changed over uh, from the Millennium Development Goals, where kind of the Millennium Development Goals had this kind of fixed t- uh, feel about them and very one-dimensional. When you look at the new sustainable goals, it seem to uh, look at water in a very interesting way. When we look at Goal 6 of the new Sustainable Development Goals, it calls for ensuring the availability in sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. Now, looking at this uh, change, especially from uh, an international agenda, Dr. Valerie Naidu, what was your observation in terms of how we're looking at uh, water management and sustainability there? I think the big change around uh, MBGs to SDGs is that the SDGs 
uh, quite correctly around sustainability. So not only the use, but how do we reuse at the end of that process? Whereas, and, and thinking about the entire water cycle, so if you are uh, flushing water and creating wastewater, you know, are you dealing with that in a responsible way? Whereas I think the MDGs were really just talking about providing a, a sanitation service. Uh, without actually thinking mm. about the impact that this would have in terms of the environment. So I think the SDGs is actually going in the right direction in terms of managing um, both the water and the pollution effects and then the reuse in, of that water, uh, which will, I think, drive us in the right direction as opposed to simply uh, creating more waste and more pollution, which may have a high impact not only in terms of health, but uh, in terms of the environment as well. Mm. Your thoughts there, Dr. O'Donnell, you? Look, I, I, I agree with Valerie. I, I think they're a, a, an impressive step in the right direction. I think how we collectively implement and help each other in delivering on those goals will be the real, uh, the real challenge, but where the real opportunities also lie. So how do countries who are learning solutions to the challenges they face, how do we better share those with other countries? Um, when it comes to drought, we all have very similar challenges. Drought means that we don't have sufficient water. It means that we look to innovation, uh, research and development to come up with new and novel answers. But often those answers aren't just useful in Southern Africa, but they could be used in Australia or in North America or a range of other countries. So, so the goals, I think, set a nice agenda. Um, how we share the knowledge and experience that we're all developing as a result of these challenges through drought uh, is probably um, of more interest to me so that we can actually um, collectively and together um, meet the, the drying climate that's approaching us. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back to our guests. Remember, today we're speaking water and we're partnering with the Water Institute of Southern Africa, which is hosting a conference looking at the topic, the ultimate constraints. And we know that we are in that era where water is not just an easily accessible issue. Maybe for us, when we open our taps, it's easy for us to actually access water. But water is becoming more and more scarce, especially with the issue of climate change. If you're just joining us, we have Dr. Valerie Naidu, who is the board chair of the Water Institute of Southern Africa. Also joining us on the line, we have the CEO of the Australian Water Recycling Sector of Excellence. That's Dr. Mark O'Donoghue. Hey, do you think that governments are doing enough to alert us ordinary citizens about the problems of water shortage in Southern Africa and also to deal with that specific problem? Give us your thoughts. Remember, you can find us on our Twitter handle at African Dialogue or you can actually Send us your SMSs for that answer on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.org. I'm Benjamin Mushatama. You'll be with me for the next hour right here on Channel Africa and the voice of the African Renaissance. Stay with us. If you have friends and family in the United States of America who enjoy staying in touch with news from home, 
Tell them they can call 605-475-1711 and listen to Channel Africa from any mobile phone. The best part is there is no extra cost for the call when it originates from the U.S. So tell your friends and family in the U.S. to listen to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, that number again, 605-475-1711. You can listen to us at no extra cost from the USA there if you're listening to us uh, via that uh, medium of telephone, 605-475-1711. Today we're looking at the Water Institute of Southern Africa a conference and uh, we've got two guests who are giving us insights on really how can we deal with the current challenges of water shortage and also droughts in our countries. We've got Dr. Valerie Nye who is uh, from the Water Institute of Southern Africa, Dr. Mark O'Donoghue, CEO of the Australian Centre Recycling Centre of uh, Excellence. That's the Water Australian Water Recycling Centre of Excellence joining us on the line. Uh, Dr. Mark, let me come to you to look at the Australian Water Recycling Centre of Excellence. Tell us a little bit about your organisation. For some of us who don't really know the kind of work that you do in Australia, tell us a little more about your centre. So Australia is a very large country, um, 80% of our population live in, in big cities like Durban and Johannesburg, but um, a large percentage, 15 to 20%, also live in small communities. And our national government has been investing in uh, research and development to try and improve access and security of water supplies to both the big cities, but also the smaller rural and regional cities. And part of that investment involved uh, funding a National Centre of Excellence for Water Recycling, which is um, what I'm responsible for running. And that Centre of Excellence invests in uh, research and innovation to identify new ways to implement water recycling in Australia. Water recycling for agriculture, water recycling for irrigation, and including water recycling for um, potable or, or drinking supply for for our cities. Um, our research uh, involves research in new technologies, uh, research into improved policies, uh, research into the economics of water recycling. And in that, um, we have a a similar similar brief to the Water Research Commission here in Southern Africa. And so we've been sharing our experiences over the last few years between my centre and the Water Research Commission here in Southern Africa. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about that exchange. What have you been learning with that particular exchange with South, uh, partnering up with Southern Africa or South Africa? Well, in one particular area, which, which I'm familiar with in terms of water recycling for drinking, where you take uh, wastewater or mine water and you use uh, very efficient and very effective technologies to remove any of the contaminants in that water and then you can provide it as a drinking water supply. Um, Southern Africa is very advanced in initiating a number of initiatives around this. Um, There are a number of cities in Southern Africa where water recycling for drinking is currently occurring. In Australia, we only have one city at the moment where that's occurring. And so uh, talking to the Water Research Commission and others who are involved in water recycling for drinking here in Africa has um, allowed us to share our experiences in the technologies that are being used, 
um, the way that we talk to our communities about this future water supply source, um, the policy and planning around making sure that when we do do water recycling for drinking, it's done in a safe and cost-effective way. That's been a tremendous advantage for both um, Southern Africa and my centre in Australia is being able to share those experiences. And that's interesting because you bring a very interesting dynamic into that conversation. And I never really thought about it is uh, the issue of how urbanization and the growing populations within these urban areas actually change the dynamics of how much water we require. Dr. Valerie Naidu, uh, that's a very interesting aspect of things and something that we don't think about how urbanization is also um, changing our need for water. Yes, I, I think those are key things at the forefront of, uh, say, the Water Research Commission in this case, uh, where we do look at urbanization as one of the factors, which then puts uh, added uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, threats to the water supply security as well as insurance. Uh, in South Africa, for example, uh, you know, you don't just get uh, urbanization. It's urbanization at a rate at which cities cannot uh, deal with it, which then leads to informal settlements. And within that context of informal settlements is, is our bigger issue. So there's the issue of uh, how do I supply water to an informal settlement? And then how do I manage sanitation in an informal settlement? And that, uh, if you look at um, you know some of the research that has come out, it shows that there, there are major issues on how to deal with that, and cities are, are really struggling in how to plan and uh, provide people with uh, uh, enough water, safe water, as well as uh, how to deal with sanitation issues. So there are major pollution aspects that are around the entire sanitation aspect around informal settlements. So urbanization is a definite reality. It's yet to stay. Uh, And so we're not only looking at um, how do you provide plan services for urbanization, but how do you plan, how do you, plan water supply and sanitation for unplanned migration of people, which you uh, get to a situation where you start asking yourself, what are the other technologies or innovations Mm -hmm. that one can deal with this issue in the interim? And also, uh, as we're about to wrap it up, I don't want us to just go through just this discussion without finding out maybe there's pertinent resolutions that might be coming out of this conference and could be taken out. Is there anything specific that you want to take out from this as a commitment, Dr. Valeri Naidu? So I think I'd like, uh, firstly, uh, as we said, uh, dealing with a single resource or putting you know, all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, uh, as your water uh, supply uh, is probably the wrong way to go. I think everyone now realizes that we're talking about a water mix. So it's about how do you manage your groundwater, your stormwater, your surface water, your rainwater, and then how do you use technologies to uh, then reuse and recycle water effectively. And then that becomes your your, your total mix. Uh, how do you then... Uh, use research and development mm. to uh, change the boundaries or change the way we do things. So in South Africa, you know, a lot of politicians talk about game changes. And when they talk about game changes, they're really saying, if you're a water-scarce country, should you be, uh, for example, flushing water down the toilet? Mm. Mm. Uh, and what would be the opportunities for the future that we need to move to? 
So uh, I think th- those are exciting spaces to, to be in. But it also means that as a public sector, whether you're an engineer or a water scientist, it means you now have to learn and think about things differently, look uh, capabilities in order to service your population better. So conferences like this add value because of the networking, the building of capacity, and uh, the reorientating of people in terms of the way they think about the problem and then how they then go about trying to find the solutions towards the problem. So if we get that out of this conference, then I think, uh, you know, we've, we've set the right uh, sort of uh, platform to move ahead in a more progressive uh, way. Well, we've got a very interesting uh, question from one of our listeners on our Twitter handle, and this is Filu. Thank you, Filu, for sending your message on our Twitter handle. It says, African Dialogue, how can we recycle, yet we lack resources? Capital is a big problem sometimes for African countries. That's what Filu is asking. Maybe I should put that to you, Dr. Marco Donahue. Is sometimes capital a problem, especially with the changing times and the changing uh, uh, technologies? Uh, in Australia, it definitely is. Um, we've got a uh, a challenge in the future in finding the money to maintain our our existing water supply infrastructure. Um, but then we have this additional challenge of finding money to build our new water infrastructure. As our populations grow, as our cities grow, we have to find more money. And in Australia, the water is managed by uh, public utilities, by by government-owned companies and one of the big challenges, one of the big discussions occurring in Australia at the moment is um, the role of private investment in the future supply of water. Um, Private investment can bring new money into the system but the community are saying well how can we have confidence that that private investment won't only be there to make a dollar, that private investment will lead to um, the same level of water security, the same level of water quality that, that we would like to see. Um, so it's an, it's an ongoing dialogue in Australia, but um, I don't believe governments in the future can afford to maintain and build our water supply systems by themselves. I think we will have to look at a mix of uh, both public and private investment in the future. And there are important discussions that are occurring not only in Australia, but in how we do that is, is occurring in a number of countries. Mm, very interesting there. Dr. Verinaidu, are we seeing the same commitment? Could we see the same kind of commitment as well from the private sector or different partners, especially when it comes to this issue of water resources? Because it's not just a, a simple thing that you do overnight. It does need a lot of resource. Uh, I think we're having exactly the same conversation sure, sure. Uh, in, in South Africa, and I'm, I'm assuming also maybe in, in Southern Africa, because... Uh, in, in South Africa, we have set institutions who have very set functions as to how they operate. I think the utilities, the, uh, the municipalities are all struggling to find what is the business case around water. And as we add more technologies and treatment processes, it, it becomes the same thing. So in South Africa, uh, very often you hear us talking around, you know, is the pricing of water correct? Uh, do we have the right uh, sort of mix of public and private? How do we get public-private partnerships uh, involved? It's not an easy question, simply because water uh, in South Africa, for example, is a right. And so there's always a danger that when you privatize, uh, you know, how do you manage that? How do you regulate that? So there are a whole range of things that I think we need to deal with 
around the whole issue of costing, but that's an excellent question. And I think uh, you'll find that uh, for different regions in the country, for different municipalities, they're all playing around with different sort of models on how to do this effectively. Uh, but I don't think there's one answer you know, around this issue, mm, and I think mm. it's something we'll be battling with for a, for a long long time, mm. not just in South Africa, I think globally. Well, let's wrap it up. We've got around two minutes or so. Dr. Marco Donahue, maybe you have a final sentiment that you want to express as we wrap up the conversation. I'm very pleased to be in Durban today and mm. tomorrow for this conference because I've even in the brief time that I've been at the conference, I've seen some tremendous new technologies being discussed. I've seen the way that um, the, the researchers and the industry are actually challenging each other to come up with new and better solutions. And that's the sort of environment that my centre wants to be involved in. So tomorrow when we run our workshop and we do it con- uh, jointly with the Water Research Commission, I'm I'm, um, I'm looking at an atmosphere and, a, and an environment that I think is very progressive and I think it's going to be a benefit for both the people here at this conference but also it'll allow me to take back some new ideas and solutions to Australia. Dr. Valerie Naidu, your final sentiments? So I think it's the same. As I said, uh, this is a, a problem that will be with us. Uh, if we look at the models uh, in terms of issues uh, around water for South Africa, I think uh, it will get more uh, severe uh, in certain parts of the country. So I think we need to always be open to the opportunities. And as I said, there's no one uh, solution that will fit everything. We actually have to have a basket of solutions, a basket of tools with which to deal with these things. But then we need to develop very capable uh, water scientists, water engineers, regulators, so that the actual the system is managed effectively. And I think a conference like this with international experts, with private sector, with, with utilities and, and, and government departments, it allows everyone to come in and have uh, a different perspective or to, or to take different perspectives from the conference and hopefully allows them to apply their minds and towards finding the right solution in their, in their domains. Well, thank you so much to our guests uh, for actually giving us their insights, and we really appreciate that you made time. We know that you guys are busy during this particular conference, so setting this hour aside for us, we really do appreciate it. Thank you to Dr. Valerie Naidu, the Water Institute of Southern Africa's board chair. Thank you as well to the CEO of the Australian Water Recycling Center for Excellence. Thank you to Dr. Marco Donahue. Thank you for both, both of you for giving us your time. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It brings us to that question again. Do you think that Southern Africa is doing enough to ensure that we actually uh, deal with the current uh, drought in uh, Southern Africa? Give us your thoughts. Remember, the SMS is plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero, Or engage with us on uh, our Twitter handle, at African Dialogue. That's the Twitter handle, at African Dialogue. Thank you to a few who asked a very interesting question there that took the conversation a bit further. Thank you for your commentary there on our social media but that takes us to 11:46 and uh, let's go directly to our economics update with Wisani Matebula
Thanks, Benjamin, and good morning. South African rent has weakened even further. The currency was hit by stronger U.S. dollar as well as political uncertainty following media reports that Finance Minister Pravin Godan could be arrested. This comes as the minister is set to meet with ratings agencies uh, Fitch and Standard & Poor's in the coming weeks. Dimagato Lishoro reports. Treasury is under pressure as the country attempts to fend off credit ratings downgrades by the two agencies, Fitch and S&P. Moody's has already affirmed the country's rating at two levels above sub-investment grade. The visit by the agencies comes at an interesting time when South Africa's finance minister could possibly be charged with espionage. In the Western Cape government province investment arm in South Africa, West Grow has invited international green energy investors to plough their money into the Cape's green economy. Delegations from countries like Canada, Belgium and America are in Cape Town ahead of the start of Africa Utility Week conference. CEO of West Grow, Tim Harris, has told the delegation of the International Clean Tech Network that Cape Town could be used as a laboratory to develop and roll out their clean energy plans for Africa. What we're saying to the international partners is that the Cape is essentially a laboratory for them to develop and roll out their renewable energy and clean tech plans for Africa. What you have in Cape Town is a special combination of probably the strongest skills pipeline in Africa, but a developing world context to roll out your technology within a very functioning, high-quality infrastructure. And the head of an official export agency of the United States government says American exports to sub-Saharan Africa remain low and points to an opportunity for export growth to the region. The president of the U.S. Export-Import Bank, Fred Hodgepeg, was speaking with journalists during a roundtable discussion in the New York just after his uh, return from the World Economic Forum in Kigali, Rwanda. Show and Bryce Peace reports. It's a bank that seeks to finance American exports through direct loans and guarantees to foreign entities that might not have otherwise been able to make the transaction, as bank president and chairman of the board, Fred Hochberg, explains. Since President Obama was elected and, uh, and I came in as chair, we have done over $7 billion worth of loans, guarantees and insurance in sub-Saharan Africa. Meanwhile, the World Economic Forum on Africa, which has just concluded in the Rwandan capital, Kigali, has appealed for the joint partnership between private and public sector if the continent is to catch up with the rest of the world. Silvanas Karimera reports. This has been a platform where leaders of all sorts have been providing every solution as to how Africa should catch up with the rest of the world. Most of the time in the last three days of deliberations seemed to dwell so much on challenges than providing solutions to these challenges. Zimbabwe has cut its economic growth forecast to 1.4% in 2016 from an initial forecast of 2.7%. The drought has scorched crops in most of the southern African nation, which has left up to 4 million people facing hunger. Output of the staple maize is now expected at 450,000 tons, which is enough to last three and a half months. Financial indicators, the dollar at 15.52 South African rands at 10.94 Botswana Pula at 9.99 against the Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.69 to the British pound and 0.88 against the euro. Commodities, gold $1,278, platinum $1,051 per fine ounce. And uh, the spot price of Brent crude oil is at $49.25 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. I'm back in an hour's time with another update.
Let's get our sports from Musibudi Makura. Thank you, Benjamin. Good day, sports fans. And starting off with football news, the Council of Eastern Central Africa Football Association, Kasafa, has moved the Kasafa Kagame Cup from Zanzibar to Tanzania. The Secretary General of Sakafa, Nicholas Mosonya, confirmed this year's edition will be held in Dar es Salaam from the 16th of June to the 2nd of July. Mosonya says the change was triggered by the prevailing situation in Zanzibar, which is not ready to host the event following the recent elections. Mosonyes also added that this year's Sakafa Kagame Cup will be bigger, hinting at an increased figure of price money. Meanwhile, Banyana Banyana head coach Vera Bo says not being in camp for a long time meant the players were almost starting afresh when they faced Zimbabwe in an international friendly match this past Sunday. South Africa won the clash 1-0 courtesy of a Rifilwe Janes strike in the 61st minute at a chilly and rain-soaked Makulong Stadium in Tembisa, east of Johannesburg. Now, both Banyana Banyana and Zimbabwe are the two African sides that will represent the continent at the upcoming 2016 Rio Olympics in August. The Sasso sponsored Banyana Banyana's next assignment will be um, facing 13th ranked Holland in two international friendly matches. The clashes will take place on Saturday, the 4th of June, and the second one scheduled for Tuesday, the 7th of June. So on football news, newly crowned South African APSA Premiership champions Mamelodi Sundowns have arrived in Ghana for the second leg of the African Confederation Cup fourth round tie against host Medima FMSC. Rather, Sundowns take a 3-1 lead from the first leg in Pretoria into. Wednesday's game at the Isipong Sports Stadium in Sekondi with kickoff set for 5 p.m. Central African time. Sundown's head coach, Pizzo Musamani, is looking forward to the tie. We want to go to the group stages. For us to go to the group stages, it's not about winning the Confederation Cup. Of course we want to win it. It's my boys to understand how to play the group stages. Because next year we're playing again Champions League. So let them learn. And let them, that's why I say I wish I can get Mazembe on my group. So that we take the phobia of Libumbashi. We went to Kinshasa. I mean, we did well. We were very decent Kinshasa. So we go to Libumbashi, take the fear factor out. And let's play Mazembe uh, again. We won 1-0 here. We lost 3-1. One more goal we could have been through. So let's go again. Look, I know... Also, that they need to rest, but if Mazembe takes it serious, Satif takes it serious, Esperanza takes it serious, who are we? Who are we? And I said it, we take it serious. We really, really competed fully like gentlemen. We played more games than any other guys, and we never took our foot off the pedal. We competed decently in CAF. We never said, no, we give this one away, we don't want this one. We, we didn't choose. We went for everything, and we got two cups. The year before last, we won one. On to Wolf J Tennis News. Wolf J Tennis South Africa's development manager Patrick Silepe has been selected as a Lion Empire for the Wimbledon qualifying event to be staged at the Bank of England Sports Ground, Bank Lane in London. Silepe will also be a chair empire for the 18 and under International Tennis Federation Junior Tournament. Both events will take place in London next month. Silepe, who recently retired from the sport as a player and obtained a white badge in November last year, admits he's very pumped up for his first major in London. Yeah, um, for me, first of all, to, 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 to stop playing professionally, it's because of, uh, you know, I didn't have uh, enough time to, 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 to train or practice uh, tennis itself. So 
So to me, it was like, you know, very stressful playing matches where without knowing very well that I didn't do my job as a player to practice. And then that's when I decided because of um, doing development around the country, I travel a lot and all the stuff, and which is what I love doing development. Then that's when I chose like, you know, because I'm also doing officiating, let me stop uh, playing professional and then focus on officiating and developing the sport itself. And then, yeah, with uh, me being selected for this, I know it's an opportunity, but at the same time, uh, it's a challenge. You know, I love challenges, but yeah, I know it's a challenge itself. The Zoya Sports News at this hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, thank you for joining us today. Remember that question we're asking today. Do you think that Southern African governments are doing enough to deal with the current crisis of drought in Southern Africa? Give us your thoughts. SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Don't forget that e- that email address is also info at channelafrica.org. That's where you can find us. And we on Twitter at African Dialogue is our handle at African Dialogue. That's our handle. So you can also find us there where we can continue our discussions online. But until tomorrow, God bless.